The following program includes descriptions of graphic and sexually explicit violence. This show may not be suitable for those affected by such descriptions or for young listeners. Parental discretion is advised. Previously on Stranglers. When I get to the top of the stairs, she's on the landing. I told her I was going to do some work in the apartment. Albert DeSalvo confessed to all of the Boston Strangler murders. I saw purplish dark blood. It came out of her right ear. But I I strangled her first with my arm and then the pillowcase. Nearly 60 hours of details, all of them recorded, analyzed, and cross-checked. But none of that could be used against DeSalvo in court. His lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, had made sure of that. Why would the attorney general's office ever agree to that? Because they had no choice. No one had ever been arrested for any of the stranglings, but lives had been ruined. They chose the greater good because they wanted to clear up the mysteries. The confessions convinced the task force DeSalvo was the strangler, but his stories contained a lot of mistakes. Plus, there was the question of DeSalvo's motive for confessing in the first place. DeSalvo was convinced that he could make a great deal of money from the sale of his life story. You know, he was also convinced that he would not go to prison, but to a posh mental institution. Over the course of two years, 13 women had been sexually assaulted and murdered, and thousands more had lived in constant fear. It's true that after DeSalvo was taken into custody in November of 1964, the strangling stopped. For the city of Boston, this was no doubt a moment of relief. But for the 13 women who had been buried, and for the families who had lost their sisters, their mothers, and grandmothers, one very important question remained. Would Albert DeSalvo stand trial for those crimes? From Stitcher and Northern Light Productions, in partnership with Investigation Discovery, this is Stranglers. I'm Portland Helmet. Anna Slesser. Ida Erda. Miss Jane Sullivan, 67, was found. They were strangled, usually with a piece of their own clothing. Articles of silk or satin. There's more than one way to skin a cat. Albert Sassalvo was one of the bigger con men in human history. Episode 9 Testimony. Hello. Hi, Mr. Bailey. It's Portland. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you. It's a nice snowy morning. Yeah, I'm up here at a very, very light dusting of snow, and it's cold. Now, well, it's cold down here. I'm in a basement at Northern Light Productions. But a really, uh, very, yeah, we're, we're recording in the basement. Uh, how the mighty have fallen. <laughs> you know F. Lee Bailey's voice by now. Celebrity defense attorney, lawyer of Patty Hearst, O.J. Simpson, and of course, Albert DeSalvo. Bailey is a man of bold legal moves. Albert DeSalvo confessed to the Boston Stranglings under conditions Bailey arranged that ensured DeSalvo would never face a death penalty. But Bailey's biggest bet was that DeSalvo's confessions could help his client be found not guilty of lesser crimes as well. In 1967, Albert DeSalvo was about to go to court on multiple charges of breaking and entering and sexual assault. These were the Green Man crimes, the ones DeSalvo had committed in a green workman's uniform in 1964. 
These are also the crimes from 1964 that had forced DeSalvo's psychiatric observation at Bridgewater Hospital. DeSalvo himself couldn't count how many times he'd approached women as the green man, but he did it compulsively. DeSalvo once bragged he had attacked three women in three different states in one day and still got home in time for dinner. He got caught in the green man cases because a woman he had assaulted before, he forgot her address and he went back and she recognized him and she called the police. From the start, the green man case possessed something the Boston Strangler investigation lacked a witness who identified Albert DeSalvo. A full year after DeSalvo's confessions, the Strangler task force had all but given up. Here's Loretta McLaughlin. She wrote about the Strangler murders for The Record American. They could not and would not charge him with the Stranglings because they had no clues. And they were afraid that in the middle of the trial, he would renege on the confession and they would be left trying to try him on the physical evidence, and there wasn't any. And so for the task force, and for much of Boston, the Green Man trial would serve as a kind of stand-in for a Strangler trial. And F. Lee Bailey saw how he could use this to his advantage. What was your strategy for defending Albert DeSalvo in the Green Man trial? The effort was a hybrid in this sense. We were going to try him for one set of crimes that were non-homicidal, and attempt to show that during the perpetration of those crimes, he suffered from legal insanity, try to weave in the history of homicidal conduct to highlight the fact that this man was crazy in some respects and sort of meld the two together and say, well, if he was nuts then, he remained nuts when he committed these other non-homicidal but very serious crimes. A rape trial began in Middlesex Superior Court in East Cambridge today, and that was nothing new. What was different about this particular case was that where most of such trials are ignored, this one was covered by reporters from Great Britain, from Germany, and by special correspondents from newspapers from one coast of the United States to the other. Albert H. DeSalvo, a short, swarthy man, now 35 years old, was brought up to the court from the state mental hospital in Bridgewater. DeSalvo's attorney was... It was January in Boston and cold, but people swarmed the courthouse. There was a rope outside, and people stood outside the rope, hoping that someone would leave the courtroom and make a seat available. Their motives for being there were as varied as their professions, or lack of them. A woman who identified herself as a psychiatric nurse said she was there to study the salvo and that she was convinced he is smarter than you and I. One observed she had come to see, quote, what kind of monster this is. When asked what kind of monster she saw, she replied candidly, from here, he looks just like any nice American boy. This nice American boy had spent the last three years under observation at a prison psychiatric hospital. The first issue the judge had to decide at DeSalvo's trial was his competency. We're using actors to recreate the proceedings. 
Effley Bailey opened by asking DeSalvo if he understood what the hearing was for. Is it your purpose to deny these charges? No, sir. You understand you're unlikely to be freed? Yes, sir. You understand we're not attempting to defend on the merits? That is, we took the case only to prove your insanity? Yes. You understand we are going to make no efforts to contradict the state's witnesses to provoke an acquittal? Yes, sir. He told Judge Moynihan that he understood the charges against him, that he had confidence in me, that he was able to assist me um, in the course of the trial, and that he wanted to go to trial. How did he seem? He was lucid. He was certainly nervous because of the um, consequences of what was being done, but he was anxious to go forward. I want to expose the truth, to tell the truth. I'd like to know myself what happened. The judge declared DeSalvo ready to face a jury. And with that, the trial was launched. The prosecuting attorney, Donald Kahn, and Bailey agreed on an all-male jury for a trial exclusively concerning attacks against women. Uh, Obviously, we were concerned that any woman would identify with the victims and not want to give DeSalvo any kind of break. May it please the court, Mr. Foreman, gentlemen of the jury, the Commonwealth will offer evidence pertaining to the defendant on four separate and distinct cases involving 10 indictments. In his opening statement, uh, Donald Kahn gave a bread and butter description to the jury of what the evidence would show. And the evidence will prove beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond any doubt, that the defendant is guilty as charged on the 10 indictments involving assault and battery by means of a dangerous weapon, armed robbery, breaking and entering, and unnatural acts. And we proceeded in a workmanlike way to put the witnesses on the stand who were victims of one kind or another. Mrs. Martin to the stand, please. Would you like to be seated, young lady? No. All right, fine. Would you state your name, please? Sarah Martin. Are you married or single? Married. Do you have children? Yes. One. On the morning of October 27, 1964, Sarah Martin's family left their Cambridge apartment while she slept. Sarah Martin is a pseudonym to protect the victim's identity. And who was in the apartment with you, Mrs. Martin? Nobody, but later on... Will you tell us specifically what happened? <clears throat> uh, I, I awoke at a quarter of ten in the morning, and there was a man standing in my bedroom doorway. Can you identify the man who was standing in your doorway? Yes, I can. Who is that? The man standing... May the record show that the witness has indicated Albert DeSalvo, the defendant, as the man who was standing in her bedroom. We stipulate to the identification. How did DeSalvo react when they were testifying? When the women testified, he was not very emotional, but he certainly looked sad. Indeed, if one had to characterize his demeanor throughout the trial, it was stoic, generally, but sad. 
What was the first thing that was said between you and the defendant after he was standing in the bedroom? I, I asked him what he was doing there, and he said that he knew me. He said, you know me. I said, no, I don't. He said, I'm a police detective, and he wanted to ask a few questions. I said, please go outside until I get dressed. He started walking towards the bed, and I asked him to please leave again, and then he approached the bed and bent over me, and I realized... I, 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 could you, could you slow it down a little, please, Mrs. Martin? Apparently his honor is having a little difficulty in following your testimony. Just take your time now. <clears throat> As he approached the bed, I got up and I screamed. And when I screamed, he pulled out a knife. Keep your voice up. <clears throat> he said he wouldn't hurt me and... He turned me on my stomach and got my husband's pajamas on the chair and tied my feet and my hands behind my back and blindfolded me and gagged me. And what happened after you were tied, blindfolded and gagged? He turned me over on my back and pulled up my nightgown and kissed my breasts and my private and then asked me to stand up. May it please the court, in order to avoid the detail, we will stipulate that the acts charged in the indictment were performed by the defendant as alleged without unnecessary detail. Bailey wasn't going to fight any of the details of the crimes. And at times, both he and the prosecution said they were concerned for the delicacy of the women in the courtroom. The Commonwealth respectfully feels it is difficult for the witness, but feels it is absolutely necessary. You have the right to go ahead, if you wish. Thank you. What next occurred after he asked you to stand up? After I stood up, he... He again pulled up my nightgown and kissed me again, and after he started to leave, he asked me to please forgive him and not to tell his mother. He started to leave, and through the gag, I asked him to please not leave me tied up so tightly, and he said he would send his friends back to untie me later. But then he came back and loosened the ties and left. Police believed DeSalvo had attacked as many as 300 women, and DeSalvo at times said he'd approached thousands. But the prosecution chose to try him on only a handful of charges. Sarah Martin was one of only four victims who spoke at the trial. All the women who testified had been molested and sexually assaulted, but they had not been raped. This strategy by the prosecution confused me. DeSalvo had raped women as the green man. So I'm wondering, Mr. Bailey, if the prosecution wanted to put DeSalvo away for life, I mean, why, why not try him for the most serious crimes? Why, why not put witnesses on the stand who had been raped? It is not uncommon at all that the prosecutor will choose from the string of victims the strongest cases or, in cases of this sort, those cases where the victims are willing to testify publicly what happened to them. 
There are many, many rape cases that never go to trial because the victim insists that they be uh, disposed of in some other fashion. I can only imagine, not being a woman, the horrible experience of getting on the witness stand in, in describing forceful sex. I tried to contact the women who had testified at the trial to ask them what they felt taking the stand. But the Green Man trial took place 50 years ago. Two of the women have passed away, and the other two haven't responded. Professor Jane Caputi, author of The Age of Sex Crime, says Bailey is right. Women often refuse to testify in rape cases, and for good reasons. You know, the the common refrain is that if you're going to report to the police because of attitudes within the police in some cases, because of the court where you will be subjected to cross-examination, including on your past sexual history in many cases, you will be raped again. And many women just don't want to go through that. Mm -hmm. They decide to prioritize their healing rather than engagement with the criminal justice system. So for them, the act of saying, this is what happened to me in a public forum is not necessarily an empowering experience. It's It's not so much this is what happened to me, but how it will be turned against her. What do you mean by that? Can you elaborate? She'll be accused of being a liar. She'll be said that, you know, she really was a slut and somehow invited this kind of behavior. The onus will be put on her because basically women's word was not believed. I mean, even our word testimony comes from the etymological root for testicles because only men were seen as having credible testimony. Women were seen as hysterical or lying about rape because they were seen as really wanting it but not being able to say so. And we've seen that so many times. Bravely they testified. Courageously they searched the memories they obviously had tried to push into the recesses of their minds. One witness repeatedly had to admit, quote, I forgot something, as more and more intensely she relived the nightmare on the witness stand. Through much of her testimony, she glared directly at DeSalvo, and cold fury stalked her words. Another witness so muffled the words of her memories that again and again she was told to speak louder and more directly into the microphone. A fourth witness stuttered and faltered and appeared almost at a loss for words when she was describing graphically what the salvo had done. After each of DeSalvo's victims spoke, Bailey was given the chance to cross-examine. Each time, he told the court he had no questions. I do not believe I cross-examined any of them, partly because I thought they were telling the truth and partly because there was no way to dispute what they were saying on its face, nor in the grand strategy of things, was there any point in trying to impeach or diminish their credibility. They were there, what had happened had happened, and we were trying a case we were trying to interpret what had happened and transition that to why it happened in terms of the mental condition of Albert DeSalvo. Right, you weren't trying to convince the jury that Albert was innocent of those crimes at all. I said in my opening statement that he wasn't innocent, but we would show through competent medical evidence that he was legally insane 
when the crimes occurred. After the break, Bailey makes his best case for an insanity verdict by letting DeSalvo's words speak for themselves. Now, back to Stranglers. The core of F. Lee Bailey's defense was that Albert DeSalvo was insane when he committed the Strangler crimes and when he acted as the Green Man. In his opening statement, Bailey told the jury DeSalvo couldn't be held responsible. For a period of 18 months... Thirteen acts of homicide were committed by a completely uncontrollable vegetable walking around in a human body. There is a facet to his personality which he cannot control. He has one of the most crushing sexual drives psychiatry has ever encountered. The Boston Globe reported that spectators in the courtroom gasped when details of DeSalvo's sexual assaults were read out. Bailey's job was to prove that DeSalvo committed all of these violent and lurid sexual attacks without understanding what he was doing or why. Was the defendant at the time of these acts able to determine right from wrong? He was not able to. He had no need to. He thought he was God in his self-created world and had no need to. DeSalvo told me, I know now it is wrong, and I can't answer for before. At the time DeSalvo committed these acts, was he reacting under an impulse? He was reacting to an insatiable, compulsive drive. Was that drive controllable or uncontrollable? It was irresistible. So, Mr. Bailey, it's my understanding that you were trying to prove that DeSalvo passed this irresistible impulse test, that he had no ability to stop himself from attacking women. But I have to say I'm kind of confused by that because he planned. You know, he wore gloves and... And he was, he was cogent enough not to leave any evidence. So doesn't that suggest that he premeditated the crimes? That he didn't suffer from some irresistible urge? Well, that may be your opinion, but they really, the two are irrelevant. A streetwise criminal will usually be very careful not to leave tracks behind him. Uh, he either wears gloves or he wipes down anything he's touched He changes his shoes frequently, so footprints don't make part of the police file that eventually brings him down. That does not really have any bearing on whether or not, if he feels a very strong impulse to do something, criminal or otherwise, he has the willpower to resist it. I'm very skeptical of that kind of argument. I think it's Uh, very much plays into rape myths about men's imperative sexuality. Jane Caputi says the argument that a rapist's sexual urge was irresistible or imperative was an old idea, a long-standing defense of men's worst behavior. Look at the history of, of law against rape or just cultural understanding of rape. I mean, up until the feminist movement, you had rape seen as only being committed by sexual deviants and uh, that it was seen as this, you know, insanity or deviance. And then actually, no, (laughs) it's not at all. Um, In the late 60s and 70s, you had all these studies that looked at actual rapists and said, you know, there's no mental illness here. 
these guys are acting out of, you know, the, the drive for power that they express sexually. If you listen to some of these killers, like James Dobson, he said that he was always fascinated with how all these images of women in the media as available or as objects. And that he loved this idea that he could just go take a woman and have her as his. And again, we don't make the leap between like how these kinds of extreme examples of misogyny, you know, these extreme killers think, but it's in our everyday culture that women are, you know, we're much more seen as undressed than men are. We're coded through our makeup and our clothing for sexual allure. We're shown as objects over and over and over again. And again, this is part of a, of a deep culture that sets up the patterns that, yes, most obviously most men don't act on, but that some do. Hold it. I think you're going to like this picture. In the late 1950s, there was a popular TV program called The Bob Cummings Show. Starring Bob Cummings. Bob Cummings played a photographer. He was surrounded by adoring women who dreamed of becoming models. I'm a photographer. And I want to learn all about you, where you live, if you live alone. Do you wish to know these things for photographic reasons? Oh, yes, yes. You see, the more I learn about a model, the better chance I have to capture her. Yeah, on, on film, that is. I quite understand. In one episode, a group of women lined up. Oh, you just love working with him. He's a doll. And Cummings approached them with a tape measure. Wow, wow. <laughs> Gerald Frank wrote in his book that DeSalvo watched the coming show, and he claimed that this scene inspired DeSalvo to pose as a modeling scout. Models being measured, I mean, it's a real form of objectification in this kind of TV show. So, of course... <laughs> You know, why wouldn't he get the idea of this? And also realize of the kind of insecurities that women are sort of loaded with from the time we're young, that we have to measure up in terms of appearance. So, you know, he, he not only could gain entry, but he would play on women's um, fears about not being attractive enough and things like that, or wanting to be seen as attractive, because that's how our value is measured in the culture. Well, Welcome aboard. It seems to me that DeSalvo picked up on more than just the measuring tape ploy. In the show, Cummings wore his dark hair slicked back, as DeSalvo would. And Cummings disarmed women with a mixture of charm and politeness. <laughs> she must have thought I was a member of the crew. <laughs> I couldn't help but think of how many people, victims, investigators, Bailey, described DeSalvo that way. Polite. He was quite polite. It reminded me of old school politeness, actually. And when you open the door, you never worried that you were confronting the Boston Strangler. He had a big, sunny smile and a very polite demeanor. The Bob Cummings show aired from 1955 to 1959. DeSalvo would tell John Bottomley that during those same years, he was practicing how to approach women. In 56, 57, 58, 59, 60, right on through 61. I went all through Boston, right? Oh, Jesus, even Back Bay. 
And I used to go up these streets, oh man, many times, just like I was a delivery boy or something, right? All the young girls were there, see? The reason now, there were more women in these apartments. I was not raping these women or anything like that. I was, I was getting more free. Nobody in the Green Man trial heard this exchange. It was buried in the confession transcripts. But it suggests to me that DeSalvo's sexual urge was not irresistible. DeSalvo cultivated his brazenness. He was gradually developing his tactics and getting more confident in his attacks. The irresistible urge was only part of Effley Bailey's defense of Albert DeSalvo. To convince the Green Man jury that DeSalvo was a broken man with a broken mind, Bailey pointed to DeSalvo's wretched childhood. Here's John Di Natale, son of Detective Phil Di Natale, recounting some of the details jurors would have heard. His father was a drunk. His father was sadistic. His father would bring women home and have sex with women in front of the kids. I'm told from what I've read that Albert's first sexual encounter was incestual with, with his sister. Now, in a drunken fit, it's reported that his father took a knife and sliced up his wife's furniture just because he was drunk and mad at her. So, you know, he lived in a kind of like a cauldron. He was just brought to a boil. His father once broke the mother's ten fingers one by one lining the five children up and making them watch. Reporter Loretta McLaughlin. I think that's more abusive than anything I've ever heard of. And he taught them all to steal and to rob from stores and to take petty cash out of cash registers. And he evidently brought sailors home to have sex with his his daughter when she was in her middle teens. And she slept in like the same room with Albert, so he knew what was going on. My sense is, if you want to create a monster, you know, we know how to do that. We know what you, what you need to do, and it works. Dr. James Gilligan served as the top psychiatrist at Bridgewater Hospital a decade after DeSalvo was there. Gilligan's also an expert on violent crime and mental illness. He's studied the elements of childhood abuse that serial killers share. First of all, a complete lack of love for the child uh, in the in the family, and uh, uh, even more powerfully, there's a lack of love for everybody in the family. And uh, they might or might not have been also physically assaulted as, as children, but they were psychologically and emotionally and mentally assaulted. Uh, one one psychoanalyst who has studied this problem referred to this as soul murder that a parent doesn't have to physically murder a child in order to, to kill the child's soul or their, their, their sense of, uh, of worth and dignity as a human being. For some, the traumas of childhood can lead to psychosis, like schizophrenia. But according to Dr. Gilligan, mental illness is not the root cause of extreme violence. Based on my experience of decades of working with the most violent people are society produces, um, whether the individual is actually psychotic or not, what I would say they all have in common is what I call a shame-driven character structure. That is, they're hypersensitive to being shamed or humiliated uh, by other people 
or possessing any characteristics of their own that they feel ashamed of. And when I, I use shame as kind of a, um, a generic term, like we use the word flower to refer to roses and tulips and so forth. Um, I'd say there are many varieties of shame, being feeling disrespected, feeling insulted, treated with contempt, and, and so on. I mean, there are feelings of inferiority, the so-called inferiority complex. DeSalvo did seem to harbor some deep-seated feelings of shame. At the Green Man trial, Sarah Martin testified that DeSalvo told her, don't tell my mother. And Adele Roof, who survived her encounter with DeSalvo, reported that he'd said the same thing to her. Effley Bailey worked to show how childhood trauma and this mother-centered shame were part of DeSalvo's insanity. But the prosecuting attorney, Donald Kahn, was prepared to dismantle that diagnosis. Here's how Kahn cross-examined psychiatrist Robert Meser. Do you concur with Dr. Brussel that the irresistible impulse has been with this defendant for 20 years? I believe what Dr. Brussel meant was that there was an abnormal impulse for 20 years. And he could turn it on and off like a faucet. Yes. At a point, it was resistible, then irresistible, and it becomes resistible again. Did you testify June 30th, 1966, before Judge Cahill, when you were called as a witness by Bailey, did you testify DeSalvo was competent to stand trial and that he was suffering from chronic differential schizophrenia? Yes. Did DeSalvo stand up well under cross-examination? He did. Did DeSalvo exhibit catatonic symptoms or did you notice any bizarre behavior? No, sir. You were aware, doctor, that I was running through the classic symptoms of schizophrenia. Did you observe that DeSalvo exhibited any of these during this hearing? Not that I observed. Khan then called another witness to undercut the idea that DeSalvo was ashamed of his crimes. Stanley Sutherland was a fellow inmate of DeSalvo's, and Khan said he would reveal the way DeSalvo really thought about his victims. He was in Bridgewater with Albert. He took the witness stand and said that Albert had many conversations with him during which he admitted or boasted that he was the strangler and that he said he was hoping to make some money by publishing a book. Stanley's testimony was uh, viewed by the press as a bombshell witness. Al said he wanted to go to a good hospital, have a head operation, and go free. Did you ask him why he wanted an operation? He just wanted to get out. He wanted to get free. Setterland testified that DeSalvo told him he could make Jack the Ripper look like a bum, that he'd committed almost 8,000 crimes since he got out of the service, and that if the women gave him a hard time, he would strangle them to, quote, shut their big mouths. Against the defense's image of a schizophrenic man, a man shattered by a nasty childhood and an unnatural sexual urge, Setterland painted a simpler picture. DeSalvo was cruel and proud of it. Our understanding, though, is that Sutherland said that DeSalvo was manipulating investigators to make them think 
that he was at the mercy of an irresistible impulse, that he was sort of faking this Jekyll Hyde persona. Is that not true? Well, Albert tried to manipulate people whenever he could, whether he could successfully manipulate myself and a bunch of uh, wizened detectives, I think is a a big stretch. Albert was not a terribly um, smart guy. He did not have a high IQ. He was a very streetwise fellow. And I judged him to be that the day that I met him. And he proved to be exactly what I thought he was. I think the cops agreed. The prosecution called some of DeSalvo's former work colleagues to the stand to further prove that during the time of the attacks, DeSalvo showed no apparent symptoms of mental illness. They testified that DeSalvo was polite and acted in a normal manner, and that he'd done his work perfectly well on the specific days he'd carried out attacks. Kahn then called Dr. Ames Roby, medical director at Bridgewater, to the stand. Roby testified that DeSalvo was faking mental illness and that it wasn't his idea to do so. Roby accused Effley Bailey directly. I learned that the hallucinations DeSalvo had at Bridgewater were feigned on your orders. There was a great deal more feigning going on than I'd previously suspected. Roby said DeSalvo fooled him into misdiagnosing him as schizophrenic, that in fact he was a compulsive liar and a sociopath, but legally sane. He said DeSalvo was not afflicted, quote, with a mental illness, but rather a defect of character. Bailey tried bringing in his own star witnesses, the leaders of the Strangler Task Force, John Bottomley and Detective Fildi Natale. He hoped their testimony might sway the jury through the pure shock of those crimes. But Kahn objected, and the judge agreed. The Strangler murders were outside the scope of the trial. And so the attorneys made their closing statements. Albert H. DeSalvo, self-confessed Boston Strangler, sat like a playwright attending the hit run of his own show when the curtain rang down Wednesday on his trial in Middlesex Superior Court. He sat unobtrusively in the courtroom, yet consciousness of authorship sometimes showed in the half-smile on his lips. He sniffed many times as his star performer, attorney F. Lee Bailey, delivered his summation of the case, always referring to the defendant as Albert. Frankly, I don't care if they call him a sociopath or a schizophrenic. Either one of them is a mental disease or a defect. Now, the evidence shows that Albert wanted to get caught or turn himself in and have a head operation or have a piece of his brain cut out and then come back a new man and rejoin society. Now, this sounds pretty selfish, and I'm sure Albert said some pretty selfish things. But if these ramblings are the words of a sane person, I personally do not think so. No sociopath would say, as Albert did to one of his victims, forgive me, don't tell my mother. (laughs) Imagine a bank robber running out of a bank and calling back, forgive me, don't tell my mother. I don't pretend to understand Albert DeSalvo. I don't think the psychiatrists understand him very well. If they did, they would have stopped him a long time ago. 
and saved a lot of people from a lot of serious and macabre consequences. In his closing statement, Assistant District Attorney Donald Kahn retold the accounts of the four victims who'd spoken at trial. He argued again that DeSalvo was sane when he committed these crimes, that he carried them out with planning and care. And Kahn warned the jury, DeSalvo, the expert liar, wanted to fool them too. This is a man who wants you to believe he is a vegetable, overwrought and overwhelmed by irresistible impulses. Don't be dissuaded by his cuteness and cunning. You're going to have to live with your conscience when you get out of here, just as I am with mine. Are you going to sit there and let this man get in a hospital and get out in a few years? No. Stamp his conduct for what it is. Vicious, wrong, cruel, criminal conduct. Don't allow him to fake, feign, and con you right out of your shoes like he conned a couple of doctors. Khan had objected to Bailey's task force witnesses, but he knew full well that every man on the jury thought he was looking at the Boston Strangler. Khan's closing argument mined that fear. If these 12 men bought Albert DeSalvo's insanity plea, they might be responsible for setting the Strangler free. After the break... The jury decides if Albert DeSalvo is insane or guilty. Now, back to Stranglers. How long did the jury deliberate? I don't believe that the jury was out very long, um, probably less than half a day. Will the jury please rise? Mr. Foreman, has your jury agreed upon its verdict? Yes, it has. When the jury came back, I knew immediately what the verdict was because they wouldn't look at me and they wouldn't look at Albert, and that's a surefire sign that you've got a guilty verdict. If they look at the prosecutor and smile, uh, that drives the stake through the heart. The jury did not buy Bailey's argument that DeSalvo, the self-confessed Boston Strangler, was insane. They found him guilty on all counts of breaking and entering, robbery, and assault. And so when they read the verdict, how how did you feel? I was unhappy, to be sure, and when the press asked me for my judgment, I said, we have just burnt another witch. And by that, I meant that the public was so afraid of DeSalvo that they didn't want to deal with him on any level, nor uh, require or encourage authorities to deal with him. DeSalvo was sentenced to life in prison for the Green Man crimes. But newspapers around the world announced Boston Strangler sentenced to life. Those crowds outside the courtroom, they weren't there for the green man. They were there to see the Strangler. 
Reporter Jean Cole was covering the Green Man trial for the Record American. And on one of the final days in court, Cole spotted a familiar face sitting in the back of the courtroom. Mrs. Clark, clad in a vivid green dress, slipped into the courtroom almost unnoticed to listen to the testimony and to cast her eyes on DeSalvo. Later, when questioned in a corridor, she smiled. How did you know me? I didn't want anyone to know I was here. You can't anticipate why I would come. I had to see this animal. I had to see what he looks like. Helen Clark was the mother of Sophie Clark, the first young victim of the Boston Strangler. She had come to assess DeSalvo in person. Jean Cole had met her while reporting on Sophie's death. There was both a sadness and bitterness in Mrs. Clark's voice when she spoke. Her daughter was murdered in her Huntington Ave apartment on December 5, 1962, the sixth victim of the Strangler. He doesn't look normal to me. Of course, I can understand why he would look normal to disinterested people who have been in the courtroom and watched him. But if they had lived what I lived through, this man could never look normal to them. Mrs. Clark saw DeSalvo as a monster, and she told Jean Cole she wanted him sent to the electric chair. Cole told her the chair was now banned in Massachusetts. And Mrs. Clark said, I came here today hoping I would hear the right thing and that I would see justice done. If DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler, he did evade justice because he never did go to trial for the murders. Six months after DeSalvo was driven back to Bridgewater State Hospital to begin serving his life sentence, the attorney general's office issued a statement. This was a different attorney general. Edward Brooke had just been sworn in as a U.S. senator. His replacement was Elliot Richardson. Richardson said his office had given up on the idea of prosecuting DeSalvo. There wasn't enough evidence to indict DeSalvo, and his confessions were still unusable. Richardson's statement also acknowledged, almost offhandedly, something extraordinary. That his office believed more than one person was likely involved in the strangling murders. Still, Richardson's statement said, we have no further avenue to explore at this time. The task force had been quietly dissolved. Albert DeSalvo went to prison. But at the same time, the legend and the industry of the Boston Strangler was just taking off. This is the story of the self-confessed Boston Strangler, based on Gerald Frank's startling bestseller. Stranglers comes from Stitcher and Northern Light Productions in partnership with Investigation Discovery. Our executive producers are Chris Bannon and Susan Gray. And the show is produced by me, Portland Helmick, with Sharon Mashihi, Ben Shapiro, Peter Clowney, the Reverend John Delore, Kate Tibbetts, and Taylor Dewicki. Special thanks to Ben Avishai, Gabriel Graben, Peter Hayden, Thatcher Keats, Paul Dubois, and to the Harry Ransom Center Archives for access to the Gerald Frank Boston Strangler recordings. 
The actors who appear in this episode are Audrey Rappaport, Jeff Pacillo, Daniel Mooney, Claire Taylor, Jesse Beecher, Peter Clowney, R. Ward Duffy, Ned Van Zandt, Rebecca Gibble, Robert Creighton, Thatcher Keats. Original scoring is by Allison Layton Brown. Stranglers is produced with the assistance of John Di Natale of Di Natale Detective Agency in Boston. To learn more about Detective Phil Di Natale, his sons, John and Richard, and the world of private investigation, you can read John's memoir, The Family Business, Memoirs of a Boston Private Eye, available at www.familybusinessthebook.com or Amazon. To read more about Phil's investigation of the Strangler case and view the web series and documentary showcasing his files, visit www.strangleholdthemovie.com. You can find Stranglers through a lot of the great podcasting apps, including Stitcher. If you subscribe on iTunes, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast. It helps other listeners find the show. I'm Portland Helmick. Thanks for listening. Next time on Stranglers. He writes to the superintendent, I'm not going to hurt anyone. I just wish to die outside these walls. There's trouble at Bridgewater. Fear, shock, were expressed by Boston-area women in reaction to the escape of strangler Albert H. DeSalvo. After the escape, Fildi Natale and Albert DeSalvo become pen pals. Phil, have you ever stopped to think how crazy and unreal this case seems to be at times? And the Boston Strangler takes hold of the box office. Oh, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know what's. I don't know what's happened to me. That's next time on Stranglers. <laughs>